0: Do you ever get in situations that are just too big for you way more than you can handle of course you do (laughs) it's part of life isn't it maybe the bigger question is not do you get into those situations that are just too big but the question is how do you respond what what do you do how do you handle those times Like I said, we all get into those. One of the ones that sticks in my mind because it was fairly early in my Christian walk. I was in seminary, and I'd gotten married two weeks before in the middle of a 10-week Hebrew course that was a year's worth of Hebrew in 10 weeks. Took a week off, didn't take a book for a week-long honeymoon. Came back, and I had a couple weeks to finish the course. And that last week, I was looking at the last week, knowing that I had to catch up on all my Hebrew, I had to uh, have a final on Friday, and I had some other teaching responsibilities, and I was feeling overwhelmed, and I said, Lord, you are going to have to help me with this. And the next morning I woke up with a sore throat and a fever, feeling terrible. My prayer changed from, Lord, you're going to have to help me, to... Lord, what are you doing? (laughs) And Lord, you are going to have to do it, because I can't. I'm not capable of this. You see, God purposely at times puts us in situations beyond our resources, not just a little bit beyond our resources, but way beyond our resources, so we realize we can't handle it, so we can learn something that we can't learn any other way which is a dependence on Him where we learn to let His life flow through us, where we learn to trust in Him and not in ourselves. Those kind of times we all face, and they challenge our whole perspective of God, they challenge our whole way of approaching life, they challenge us to live differently, to see life differently. Well, the passage we're looking at today, the crossing of the Red Sea, Israel was in a similar situation because God was trying to teach them to learn to trust Him rather than in their own resources and to learn that God was still in control no no matter how overwhelming their circumstances looked. And those are lessons we all need to learn, aren't they? So let's look together at Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 5 and see how to learn to let the Lord fight for us in those times. Let's look first at the overwhelming enemy, verses 5 through 9. And let me remind you of the context. Last week we saw how God brought the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they're in the wilderness, and God said, oh, by the way, now I want you to back up, And I want you to go against, with your backs, against the Red Sea. Because I have a plan. And it had to seem crazy to them. So this is what happened when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we've let Israel go from serving us? You see, for uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, it was all economic. How, how are we going to let all these guys go? They support our whole building industry, our whole construction industry. We can't let them go. We have hundreds of thousands of workers here. So they're thinking, we've got to go after them. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea, beside Pi-hahiroth, in front of Baal-Zaphon. I want to show you an overhead That sets the context a bit here. Did some research this week on where this crossing might have happened, where they might have been backed up to the Red Sea. And you can see the Red Sea down here with the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba here. This is all Egypt over here, Sinai Peninsula. Up here is Israel. So they're brought out of here. And there's been some archaeology done in the last 20, 25 years that has suggested that they came across here and they ended up right here on the edge of the Gulf of Aqaba with their backs against there. And at that point, this is what's there, this beach, a spit of land that's actually large enough for a huge crowd. There are probably two million Israelites here to be backed up on the beach there. And I suspect, based on the evidence, that that's where they were. They were on this beach, covering this beach with their backs to the Red Sea. At that point, Pharaoh gets all his armies and his chariots going, coming after them. Israel has nowhere to run. So Pharaoh brings out his mighty forces, his special ops, in other words. It says he brought out the very best chariots, 600 of the best chariots, plus the other chariots he had, and all his army... And he brings them out. Now, you need to understand, chariots in those days were like tanks compared to infantry soldiers. You see, the chariots were armored. They were pulled by two horses that wore armor as well. You could get three to four men inside these chariots who had swords and shields. They were fast. They were powerful. They had protection. They could run right over people who were standing there. And the Israelites had nothing except a few spears, some rocks, sticks. They weren't well equipped at all. They had nothing to stand against these chariots. So imagine standing there and watching tanks roll towards you. They knew they did not have what it would take to stand against them. And understand, Pharaoh has just been completely humiliated by Moses and by the God of Israel. He was defeated by the ten plagues, showing that he couldn't, had no power against the true God. He had lost his own firstborn son as, as well as all the other firstborn of Egypt. He's had a change of heart now. He was humbled for a while, but now he, he is fighting mad. So he calls out the special forces. He calls out his best men. He calls out his whole army in addition to reverse this mess, to prove that he's really in control. Superior weaponry, superior power, superior numbers. Israel sitting on the beach in big trouble. Think about your own life for a moment. When have you faced situations where it's just been overwhelming? And as you look at the enemy you're facing, you realize there is no way I have what it takes to deal with this enemy. The New Testament talks about the enemies we face, the world, the flesh, the devil, Satan. And think about your own battles at times with the world. Maybe you know that, that, gosh, you shouldn't be so caught up in money and trying to live your life for that, but you can't seem to change your own heart and you seem find yourself caught up in the selfishness, and you should have it your way, and all those kinds of things, and the world just keeps being consuming, and you find that enemy too big for you. Or maybe it's your own flesh. Maybe you're struggling with addictions. Or there's things in your life that you just can't overcome in your own sinful life, in your thought life, and you're struggling, and and the flesh is just too powerful for you. Or maybe you find that Satan keeps attacking you. He's the accuser. He's the murderer. He's trying to destroy your faith. And you find the accusations in your mind are going over and over. You're not really a Christian. You're not really God's. God doesn't love you. Just crawl into a hole. Hide out. And Satan loves to accuse. And you find the accusations too big for you to handle. You find yourself caught up in resentment and unforgiveness that you can't deal with. Maybe you're caught up in overwhelming Emotions that you can't seem to handle or depression or other things that you just cannot deal with. They're too big for you to deal with. We all face times like that, folks. There's not a one of us that doesn't. But I want you to note something, a little comment in verse 8. Here's this overwhelming power Pharaoh's coming, his army, Israel's in trouble, it's a mess. But verse 8 it says, The Lord, Yahweh, hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Who's in charge? (laughs) Is it Pharaoh? Is it the enemy? Is it Satan? Is it your own flesh? Is it the world? It seems overwhelming, but who's really in charge? The Lord. The Lord's working out a plan. The Lord is working even in the mess to accomplish something far greater than you could ever imagine. He's in control all the time. So when we get in these situations that are so overwhelming and the enemy's coming and we don't know what to do and we feel utterly terrified... How do we respond? The real issue is our eyes. There's two ways of seeing when you're in those situations there's the eyes of fear and the eyes of faith. Let's look at the eyes of fear first because that's the way Israel responds. Verse 10 through 12 As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, they saw. They saw them coming. They heard the chariots. They saw this huge force coming towards them. And the result? Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became terrified. They were terrified. Justifiably so, right? I mean, this force that's coming is so much greater than them they have no resources against it and and they're backed up against the beach. Against the water, they have nowhere to go. They were terrified. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Good choice, right? But what did they cry out? Notice what they do. They immediately turned to Moses. And they said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Let me stop there for just a second. That is such a mocking statement, because if you know anything about Egypt, it's covered with tombs. There's graves everywhere. The pyramids, the sphinx, all those things that they would built many years before this were all tombs of the kings. There were graves everywhere in Egypt. And they're mocking Moses and they're saying, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? That you, Moses, brought us out here to die. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel sees that the situation is terrifying their eyes are on the Egyptians. And as they look at the Egyptians, they're overwhelmed and they cry to the Lord, but I would suggest to you, we don't know what they prayed, but I think it was something like, Lord, you better fix this or else. It's probably an angry prayer, a demanding prayer, because when they don't get immediate results, what do they do? They turn on Moses. And listen carefully to what they say. It's your fault, Moses. You brought us here. You got us in this mess to die in the wilderness. So they're blaming him. And I want you to notice how they reinvent history. When you're afraid, do you notice how you reinvent history? When you want your own way, you reinvent history. There is no indication that they'd ever said, Gee, leave us alone. We just want to serve in Egypt. Being slaves in Egypt was horrible, folks. Remember that Pharaoh was the earlier Pharaoh was trying to put them to death. He was having the midwives kill the young men, or at least try to. He was ha- having them thrown in the water. They had to get make bricks without straw. They had to gather straw on their own. They were cruelly beaten. Many were dying from the beating that, that were happening. It was a horrible oppressive evil terrible situation it was awful and yet when they get afraid they begin saying you know it wasn't so bad you know i i could handle that yeah yeah it was it was good you know we had as they say later in the wilderness you know at least we had leeks to eat and we had ugh, whatever but They're reinventing history. Notice how often we do that. When we get scared, we think, well, maybe it wasn't so bad back there. It's a common phenomenon with abused women and other people that are abused. They keep going back. Why? It seems crazy. Well, because they convince themselves it wasn't so bad because they're so afraid that being out there might be even scarier, and it's the unknown. And so they go back to the oppression. And Israel saying, it was better back there. Moses, why did you bring us here? Because they're so afraid. Their fear has caused them to blame, to be angry, to reinvent history, and to want to run back to a horrible situation. Can you relate? (laughs) When things get bad and you get afraid, you begin scrambling, you begin thinking not clearly, you lose touch with reality, you just want to somehow get out of this as quick as you can, and you're even willing to go back to the mess that your life was before because you are afraid. It's natural, okay? We do that. We do that because we're afraid of what's ahead. So we want to run. But are there other options? Is there any other way to go? I think there is. I think there is, and we see that now as we see Moses, who has eyes of faith instead of eyes of fear. He's looking at the same situation, but looking at it very differently, with different eyes. When I get up in the morning, one of the first things I do, I have my place that I like to go read and pray, and I open the shades because I want to see out. I want to see beyond where I am. (laughs) I want to see beyond where I am in the house. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, that when we're in those situations, we need to open the shades and look beyond our immediate circumstances that seem so overwhelming to us. We need to get a new perspective. We need to see differently. Notice what Moses says, verse 13 and 14. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Don't give way to fear. Don't let fear control you. I know you're afraid, but don't let it control you. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Yahweh, the Lord, will fight for you while you Keep silent. I know NIV says be still. The word really is keep your mouth shut. It is. Moses says you just need to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) What Moses is pointing out is that what you see here, folks, is not what you get. The Lord is active. And your circumstances may look overwhelming, but what you see is not what you get. There's more. There is God. God will fight for you. Whatever you are facing, God will fight for you. And I want you to notice something interesting. What's their attitude like at this point? It's pretty bad, right? I mean, they're angry. They're blaming. They're not trusting God at all. But God offers them grace. He offers them love, even in their anger. I was flying on a plane and sat by a dear lady. Her name was Professor Winston, professor at a school in California, and we just shared our lives together. She was a wonderful Catholic lady who loved the Lord. She told me a story about when her son was nine years old. He was walking down the street, and an ambulance that was off-duty ran a red light, smashed into a car, hit her son, knocked him through a plate glass window. He needed 500 stitches. The doctor said he would never walk again. But they were trying to just help him, and they gave him, started this series of surgeries that were were going to be, I don't know, 20, 25 surgeries. About the third or fourth surgery, he needed to go through all the sequence. He'd been through several painful surgeries already. He was about to go into the next one, and he had a fever of 105, and they said, we can't operate with a fever that way. He's in the hospital with a fever. They need to operate that day, or they're going to have to start the whole series over again. She said she was so angry at God. God, what are you doing? She just railed at God. In four minutes, his fever dropped from 105 to normal. They did the surgery, and God did a miracle, and he never needed another surgery. He didn't have to go through the other 17 that were planned. He played basketball for his high school team. Folks, that's grace. You see, when you're angry and you're not trusting God, and yet He gives you grace. And you know what it did to her? Exactly what we're going to see to the Israelites. It gave her faith. This God is not someone I know. This is someone far greater than I've ever known. So God gives them grace. Hey, I'm going to help you guys. I will fight for you. So begin to look at your situation differently, he says. Begin to take on the eyes of faith. God granted, granted grace even though they did not deserve it. Because God's plan is to bring us to faith, to trust Him, to believe that He will fight for you no matter what you're facing. Our tendency is not to stand. We give way to fear. But Moses says, don't give in to the fear. I know you feel it, but stand firm and watch for God to work. Notice, this is so important, this sequence. Don't give way to the fear because once you've given way to the fear, you fall right into the eyes of fear. I know you feel fear, but stand firm. Stand firm in your place. Don't run. Don't scramble. Don't try to fix it. Stand firm. Don't reinvent the past. And then see the salvation of God. Watch for God to work. Whatever you're facing, whenever you feel overwhelmed, don't give way to the fear. Stand firm and watch for God to work. God, I'm watching for you. And then he finally says, The Lord will fight for you. Remember that. While you keep silent, while you keep your mouth shut. Why is that part of it? <laughs> well, because we start we start talking, don't we, and our noisiness. We're trying to explain everything or we're trying to, to work it out ourselves. We're trying to scramble to make somehow some sense out of this. And so we try to make excuses or we try to make plans or we try to whatever. And our noisiness keeps us from seeing or hearing God in this situation. So Moses says, you want to see God work? You want God to set you free? Be quiet. Stand firm. And watch, watch for God to work. And he will. Essentially he's saying, don't get in the way. (laughs) But too often we're like Egypt. The situation's bad, so Egypt, man, they scramble their F-16s. They bring out the heavy armored divisions. They do everything. Man, we're going to take care of this. We'll do whatever we can to take care of it ourselves. And we tend to do that. But I want to tell you, that is our fleshly response. That is not the response of faith. The way of faith is very different. And I think we see it in the next few verses, 15 through 18. How you, when you have the eyes of faith, how do we respond then? Verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? We're not sure why God says that to him. We don't know how Moses was crying. Maybe he was fed up with the Israelites' attitude. I don't know. But God says, tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And I like this. It doesn't come across in the NIV, but it's clear in the New American Standard. Verse 16 starts out literally, as for you, verse 17, as for me, The Lord says, here's your part. As for you, do this, Moses and the Israelites. As for me, here's my part. Verse 17. So as for you, Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. That's your part. Step out. Trust that what God says is true. Just do the next thing that God calls you to do. Our part is to just keep being obedient. To not abandon God, to not walk away, but just take the next step. Even if it means getting your feet a little wet. (laughs) Trusting that somehow God's going to provide dry land. Somehow God's going to take care of you, even though it may not look like it. So keep praying. Keep seeking God. Keep serving others. Keep being obedient. Keep brushing your teeth. And I say that because sometimes when you're overwhelmed, just to get up and brush your teeth can be hard to do. Sometimes that is obedience. Sometimes that is godliness to just do the next thing. That's our part. Notice God's part, verse 17. As for me, behold... I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. God says, I'm going to take care of the situation. Notice he doesn't say exactly what he's going to do. He says, I'll harden their hearts so that they get, end up in big trouble and I'll be glorified. So keep following me. God doesn't always tell us exactly what he's going to do. And we scramble. We think, God, what are, you, what are you doing? And what are you working at? If you just show me what you're doing and why you're doing it, I could follow you. And God says, follow me. You wouldn't understand it anyway, probably. <laughs> just keep stepping out to follow me. Odds are God will work it out in a way you couldn't even understand or imagine anyway. I'll tell you a little story from my own life. When... Six years ago, I've thought about this quite a bit, the way God works sometimes. You know, it's a mystery. Six years ago when I had my heart attack, as I think about it, I had some attitudes that I was struggling with towards, get this, some of the leadership in the church here. I was on staff, but I was struggling with some things, and I couldn't seem to get beyond it. My attitude was not good, but I was busy in ministry and I was overwhelmed with it and I just couldn't deal with it and it was there, but you know what? I just kept plugging away. Suddenly I had a heart attack and I was laid up for a month in the hospital for four days and laid up at home for a month and God began to change my heart. It wasn't just the physical (laughs) heart. It was my heart, my soul, that God began to work in and change. And I wasn't even necessarily aware of it, but I had some of the leadership come back to me after that month as I got back into work, and they said, something's changed in your attitude. And it was only after that that God began to open doors for me to begin to get more involved in leadership here at Cole. Because God had broken down an enemy that I hadn't been able to deal with on my own. I am so thankful for all of that. That's God's grace, his love, how he works. We have a part to play to keep being obedient, to keep following him, but he will fight the battle. In the rest of the chapter, we get to see how God does that. He wins the war. He fights for us. Notice what he does, and this is such an incredible story. This is a story that Israel keeps going back to for the rest of their history. They still go back to it today. Verse 19 and following. The angel of the Lord who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So Israel's on the beach. Pharaoh's coming. The cloud had led them to the beach. Now the cloud and the angel, we hadn't heard about the angel before so we don't know exactly what they saw at that point, moved behind them between the Egyptians and... And Israel, as a protection. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness. Yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So you see this incredible miracle and I want to show another uh, slide here. Think about what we saw before. Hello. Oh, there we go. Right here is that beach we were looking at. And This is a picture that shows you that today they've done soundings there and right across that place is a shallow place in the Gulf of Aqaba that's not very deep at all compared to any... It just drops off steeply on either side, over on this side and that side, but there's a place there that is much more shallow. And that's why I think it probably happened here. It's eight miles across from there to there the Lord used wind, whatever he did, to blow back the waters and create walls of water. And you know, they've tried to explain this somehow naturally. There is no natural explanation for how this could happen. It's a miracle. Walls of water standing up on the side and two million Israelites walk through on dry land. And get this. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 where God... The Spirit of God hovered over the waters, it says, and God divided the waters and brought forth dry land in creation. This is a recreation, folks. The same word for wind is the word for spirit in Hebrew. The Spirit of God drove back the waters. Created dry land and Israel walks through on dry land. God is recreating a people. He's creating the people of God just like He created the universe back in Genesis 1. Now He's recreating, using all His creative power to do something that you can't explain naturally because it's the creative power of God, the Spirit of God at work. It's a miracle. No matter what you're facing, God can bring His creative power into that situation. When you can't see a way out, He provides a bridge that you couldn't see. Verse 23, Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. I love that in verse 24. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down. I think that is purposefully mocking of the Egyptians. Now, this is the armored divisions. This is the power of Egypt. This is all their forces that they could, all the worldly power you can get. And God looks down on (laughs) them. He just looks down on them. Going, following the Israelites on the bridge. God throws them into confusion. Verse 25, He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Even the Egyptians testify that God's in this. Their chariot wheels start falling off. Everything's falling apart. The Lord's beginning to fight for them. The Lord looks down and says, They're nothing. Whatever your problem is, God looks down on it and says, I'm far bigger than that. Verse 26 through 29, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians, get this, were fleeing right into it. They were so confused, they were running right into the water into the walls of water coming down on them. Then the Lord, my translation says, overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Literally, as He shook out the Egyptians. You know when you get a little bit of crumbs on your apron? Shake it out? That's what God's doing to the most powerful army on earth at that time. Shook it out. Just shakes them out. Your situation that looks so overwhelming, God can just shake out the problem. That's how big God is. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. Total annihilation of the enemy. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. They walk across... There's walls of water. Egyptians get part way across. The waters come back, and they're all destroyed. I want to show you some slides that Ron Wyatt, who is a archaeologist. You can't see it. There you go. You can't see it very well on this slide, but it's round and covered with coral, but many think that it's a chariot wheel that they found on that land bridge. Next slide, please. There's one you can see actually that it's gold-plated. It's a chariot wheel, and I'm sorry the lighting isn't better, but coral doesn't attach itself to gold, and so this is a gold-plated one, and so it's laying there in the water as a chariot wheel. And I think I have another one for you. Here's a couple of human bones, and it's had to be blown up, but they've gotten these bones out of there. There are human bones there as well. There's chariot wheels, there's human bones... There's evidence right there on that land bridge for what we're talking about here, for the Exodus having happened in that exact spot. I think the Egyptians finally realized they thought they were powerful, but I think they finally realized they were in over their heads. (laughs) I know, bad pun. Passage ends this way. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord or trusted in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Before Israel saw the Egyptians coming, now they see the Egyptians dead on the shore and they saw the great power of God. They're seeing different things, right? And they're seeing life differently now. And the result is what? Instead of fearing the Egyptians, they fear Yahweh. Not in a terrified way, but in a respectful way. Wow, He is so much greater than anything I face on earth. And so they move from anger and rage, demandingness, blaming to trust god has increased their faith we always fear something first they feared the egyptians because that's what they saw but when they began to see god's hand at work they feared god when god puts you in impossible situations recognize that he has a plan in it to increase your faith no matter where you're facing does, does your life seem in disarray does it seem overwhelming does the enemy too seem too big for you? Does your church seem to be in disarray? <laughs> God is far bigger than any of that. And if you stand and you see and watch for God to work, He will fight for you. Of course, the greatest example of this is the cross. We, in our helplessness, we could do nothing for ourselves, God stepped into our helpless state and chose to fight for us, to give up his life. And I don't think we realize what that battle cost Jesus as he chose to be abandoned by his own father that he loved so much. But he chose to walk that path so that we'd have a bridge to walk across. From death and fear to life and trust. In the Lord. So we want to celebrate communion now to recognize our salvation, what God has done to fight for us, to bring us life. And imagine how the disciples felt as they're following their Messiah and they're trusting Him, and suddenly He gets arrested and then crucified in a most horrible way. Everything's lost, right? No, because God had a plan. Not just to win their salvation, but to win your salvation and my salvation. Are you trapped on a beach of sin, addiction, depression, whatever it is you're facing? Stand and see what God has done to bring your salvation. Let's pray and then let's take communion together and celebrate his great victory. Lord, thank you for this wonderful picture of Israel who's just like us, struggles to trust you and we get angry, we get frustrated because we think things should go a certain way and yet you, Lord, in your grace and your love have reached down to us and given us life, though we didn't deserve it. You're creating us to be the people of God and I thank you, Lord, for your death on the cross that allows us to be free. You've given us that opportunity to step out, walk across that land bridge to forgiveness and life with you forever. If there's anyone here, Lord, that hasn't made that step, I pray you'd move in their hearts today. Help them talk to somebody about it. Help them turn to you to find life. And as we celebrate communion, may we truly celebrate our salvation. Thank you for the victory you've won for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.